Welcome to the official podcast of Comics Beer and Sci-Fi. Brought to you by Crystal Bright Janitorial, The Brand Barbershop, Greco Printing and Imaging, and Able Ideas. Before we get started, make sure to subscribe to this podcast and follow Comics Beer and Sci-Fi on all your favorite social media apps. Now, on with the show! This is Richie Rollins with Comics, Beer, and Sci-Fi. I'm standing here with Kevin Pike. Uh, how are you doing today, sir? I'm well. Thanks for coming to the show. And Mr. Pike here has worked on several films. What are some of the films you've worked on? I started out on Jaws when I was a kid, and I worked for about six months on location with them, helping get through that, and I came out to Hollywood and chunked my way up, learning chops on TV shows and things like that, and I started supervising my own films. Obviously, one of the big feathers in the cap is Back to the Future. We did Close Encounters, we did uh, Revenge of the Jedi, Fight Club, Michael Jackson's Moonwalker. I worked on Jurassic, Jurassic 3. I did Ed Wood with Tim Burton. A lot of wonderful projects. Awesome. And you worked on the car in Back to the Future, correct? I supervised the special effects for Back to the Future, and our crew of about 20 guys, after about 10 weeks, made three DeLorean time machines for the movie. Wow. How'd you get involved in that show? I was working on another show previously with that, and the director of photography, Dean Cundy, who I'd worked with before, had a notice about this show starting, and he said, I think you'd be good. I'd like to put your name in and see if you want to do the show. And I went in for the interview, and they liked me, and I just made a condition that I wanted to make sure I built the car because I realized how big of an element it was for the project. And they went ahead and said, okay, Stephen wants to make sure nobody takes pictures of it while you're building it. And with that, we started. Did you, did you get to pick the car, or was it already picked before you went in as being a DeLorean? It had just started to become a car idea. When we got there, they wanted something that could move around so it wasn't locked down. And they had a pickup truck with a refrigerator with a plasma energy inside it. And that turned out to be, we want a car that's spacey looking for the scene where the car comes into the barn and looks like an alien spaceship. So they talked about the Delo- uh, excuse me, Mercedes-Benz Gullwing 300, but that was a little too pricey for him. And at the time, you could get a, a, a hot deal on a DeLorean time machine. So they decided on the DeLorean, and next day, three of them came into my shop, boom, 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 and we started building. Did you ever get the DeLorean up to 88 miles per hour? It's pretty heavy. Yeah, except at the time, the speedometer didn't really go up that high. It only went up to like 85, you know, and so we had to take the dash apart, take that plate out, send it to graphics at the studio, have them redo it, put it back in, make sure that it could go past that so it could show 88. How long have you been doing this for? Uh, Since uh, April 18, 1974. I stepped away from special effects in, after 38 years, and I became a below-the-line talent agent. And then I started representing writers, directors, and producers. And now I work nothing but helping writers write screenplays. Wow. You're out of California then? I live in north of California in Pine Mountain Club. It's a little mountain community up in the hills, about an hour and a half north. It's very quiet there. I sleep well. I can be creative helping people write their screenplays. Cool. Any, uh, any screenplays you can let us know that you kind of help that some people might be recognized? 
Well, we've got one out there. It's with some agents now. It's called the Secret Codex. We've entered a lot of contests. It's been in over 25 contests. We have 10 first place wins. So we're hoping somebody will pick it up and develop it. It's a pretty big budget film. It's set in Egypt, Amsterdam, and Rome. It's called the Secret Codex. Cool. Can't wait to see that one. Me too. What, uh, what's your favorite thing about your career then? Well, the big feather in the cap, obviously, has been Back to the Future. It's such a great story. It's got all the beats, and everybody loves it. It's a G-rated movie. It's on TV every day somewhere. All kids know it. And obviously, the iconic car is an everlasting image in everybody's mind. It's a pleasure to be a part of that history. Cool. Do, you, do you think that they would actually, with the special effects today, it's like all computer. Do you see it like going strictly, like we're going to walk away from actual physical props? They tried that, and I think they realized that the marriage and the integration of both disciplines, special effects and visual effects, always need to work hand-in-hand hand to make the best product for the fans. All right. Well, thank you, Mr. Pike. It was a pleasure having you on the show. This is Richie Rollins from Comics, Beer, and Sci-Fi. Thank you. Hey, comic book geeks and your sci-fi freaks. Comic book Casey coming at you from the Fantasticon in Toledo, Ohio. I am with a hockey legend here, Mr. DM Darren McCarty himself. Pleasure and, to be here. Absolute pleasure. Not only man, we are glad to have this you. Fantastic con talking to you, talking about things that we all love and enjoy: comic books, uh, graphic beer. novels. What's that? Don't forget the beer. Comics, beer, sci-fi. We got the beer too. The beer too. Whatever it is, I'm more of a green guy, but you know oh, what wow. we're saying exactly. Yeah. But we, I, I, everything for everybody. All right. So let me start by asking you, what got you into the comic book business? Well, if anybody, uh, the, the comic book, because I got stories, right? And and here's the big thing: Messbacker Comics. Obviously, uh, Dom Reggio has been a friend of mine. Um, we always say uh, we're gonna write a spot, write a song called Chocobos and Spitters. Right, because back since Final Fantasy VII back in the day, breeding chocobos, that's when I first met Dom, so I've known him a long time. Um, that's a story in itself. But uh, a lot of the things, too, is, is that uh, having, being retired, having a career, writing a book called My Last Fight, True Story of a Hockey Rockstar, I wrote it 10 years ago, right? And, and it takes a long time to, to do books and stuff like that. So Dom put the stories, which coming out into the graphic novel, coming out, this hockey season 150 page from the book but there's still so many stories to go and the beautiful thing about cartoons and comic books it's they're ageless right so they can go on forever so some of the stories that Dom had had and he had this idea of doing a behind this like sort of behind the scenes more of a minor league hockey version of creating his own team now I played in the 90s and 2000s the NHL the game has changed Right, my game was more physical. So when he brought Donnie Brook to the forefront with his team, the Michigan Massacre, um, the stories that needed to be told. So I think the beauty about the Donnie Brook comic book and the comic book series, which we have, number one, obviously, when the creator creates his own team, Dom, right? They're gonna win. They're gonna be big and bad, and mean. But the whole other thing is when the four-time Stanley Cup champion brings his pot-smoking lumberjack, the Burnaby Blazers, yes, exactly, down off the mountain in Western Canada. Oh, you don't know what's gonna happen, but we got books to go. 
He is the creator. I think the beautiful thing is, even here as we're sitting in Toledo, uh, book three, which was done, the stories are real, and it doesn't matter if you have four cups or you've been played in the minor leagues or whatever else, this, this is locker room stuff. So it's adult humor, it's graphic, I think. There's reasons Dom likes to draw pictures like all of, like some of us used to back in in like high school on your binders with different stuff on it. So I can say right, you know, get catch my drift. Yeah, I got um, for that a few times. Yeah, you did. So there you go. So I think it's something a uh, different way to connect. Obviously, it brings me out in front of the people. Anybody that knows Darren McCarty knows that that I'm a battery and the people are my power. So just it's a diff- another way to connect and. You know, use some of the stuff, some of the stories. Um, everybody's got stories, and these are just uh, a great way to uh, to put them together. And my Burnaby Blazers are all based off of former NHL tough guys. Well, I tell you what, you are definitely a man of the people because you tend to have one of the most steady, consistent lines at any comic convention or any golf course you go to. And uh, I think, you know, the, the thing that I noticed most is that you are very interactive with the fans. They want to hug you. They want to kiss you. They want to take pictures with you. They want, they want more than just the autograph. They want to hear your stories. Well, it's the experience, right? We are, and, and this is the one thing is that I pride myself more than not is that, you know, getting pick myself back up and not just the, the highs of the hockey career, but the I, life and the, relation, the relationship that I have with the fans, being part of the grind line, you know, the... The beauty with, if you look at the Red Wings organization, is why they will, will get back to glory uh, is because of the man in charge that we all know, Steve Eisenman, but it's all his soldiers that were back in the day, guys like myself, Chris, who I do everything for that organization that I love to do, and it's the people. Being out here is part of promoting, doing the in-house. All these guys, they want to go fly, live at the rink and watch hockey all their life, that's their prerogative. I'd rather be in Toledo at a, at a, at a con or, at some, or on a golf course and spreading the love and, and getting to see the people. So everybody's doing what they love, uh, just continuing to follow my passion in a different way. Well, we're very lucky that this is part of your passion because you're making geeks like myself happy in both ways, that we're sports fans. Definitely go Red Wings, Detroit boy here. And comic books, man. You know what? You know what it is, bro. And you, you know, you had me at the beginning because this is the way. Because we all are Mandalorian. Dmac is a Mandalorian, and we're just landed in here. So, uh, you had me at hello, bro. I, I got your shirt for I'm you, like, and I'll be rocking it too. This is the way. This is the way. The Darren McCarty way. All right. Well, thank you, Darren. I appreciate you, man. Appreciate, appreciate you, you, man. Love what you love, and love it to the best of your ability. All right, this is Comic Book Casey signing off at the Fantasticon with the legendary NHL great Darren McCarty in Toledo, Ohio, y'all. We'll get back at you. This is Richie Rollins from Comic Experience Sci-Fi at the Fantasticon in Toledo, Ohio. And today I'm standing with Bruce Wechtenheiser. Bruce Wachtenheiser, who's been a Spider-Man fan for over 50 years. Yes, 55 years of connecting and collecting, that's what I say. And I'm here to do my presentation and then maybe sell a few things, too. How did this start? What was your first moment that this all started? Well, just like any other hero, I got an origin story, right? So my older brothers and sisters were watching cartoons, and the first Spider-Man cartoon in the 1967-68 era was on TV and they called me over and they're like, Bruce, check out this new cartoon. I said, what the heck is a Spider-Man? And I just fell in love with the character. 
couple months later, my brother brought me home my first comic book. I went to more comic books, and I never stopped. How much uh, would you say, how many pieces do you have to your collection, would you say? Well, that fluctuates. I'm a, I'm a collector that buys, sells, and trades a lot. But uh, in fact, one time, right before I got married, I sold 400 items to one person. I wasn't giving up, but I sold a lot of items. But I'd, I'd say I'd probably have about 1,000 pieces right now. But with comic books added on, that probably goes up to 2,000. Uh, do you have a favorite comic book like issue? Well, as far as reading it, there's a cool issue that Steve Ditko did. And there's a cool connection to Steve Ditko, the creator of Spider-Man, the first 38 issues. I've lived in his hometown my whole life. So that's another connection that gives me goosebumps. That, but uh, I like his issue number 33 where Spidey has to lift up tons of material that has fallen upon him or else he's not, he's going to drown because he's underwater in this headquarters of Dr. Octopus. Plus there's a serum that he needs to, to grab there to save Aunt May's life. So if he's not getting out, he's dying and so is Aunt May. And he, of course, Spidey saves the day. He says goosebumps, but I know that's really his Spidey sense. That's my Spidey sense going off all the time. And something evil's going on somewhere. What did you feel about the new movies coming out? I loved all the movies. I'm very particular about Spider-Man Entertainment. I loved all of them. Uh, haven't seen a bad one yet. And do you have a favorite, outside of comic books, do you have a favorite object that you just like? My favorite item in my collection is a little AM radio that was like in the, in the uh, shape of Spider-Man's shoulders and head. And it was purchased for me by my mother for Christmas when she really didn't have much money. And it was a high ticket item in 1973, $25 for this radio. Typical toys were six to $10. And I don't know how she made it happen, but that ended up underneath the Christmas tree. So that's the one I'm most connected to uh, as far as memorabilia goes. And I've got a lot of memorabilia. I've really kind of specialized in that in the last 30 years. I don't have the biggest Spidey collection in the world, but I have a nice one. And, but that's, that's my most emotional piece. Do you have a... A man cave or a Spidey cave? I have a very small Spidey cave. Uh, I'm allowed to put things on the walls in the lower level of my home. Uh, it's in the weight room and game room that my children and I use, so only on the walls. And upstairs, I'm not allowed to put stuff. I don't know how that happened in my split level home. The vote was one to one, and still, I lost the vote. So Spidey on the lower level, but not in the upper level. It's like a hero. You know, he sacrifices for the greater good. Exactly, exactly. But, uh, and, and I've been doing these presentations only the last six months, and I've gone to about 14 conventions, and I have to apply to, to do my presentations about my life and about Steve Ditko. I have two different presentations, but it's been cool. I, I set up a website called SpideyandMe.com, so if anybody wants to check out my website and see where I'm going or see interviews that I've done in the past, it's been fun. Because Other than this, I'm a math teacher during the week. I'm a high school math teacher, and sometimes on the weekends I get to go out and do some fun things and, and be Spider-Man. You said you had kids. Uh, are they like typical kids? To, uh, do they rebel against your spidiness or do they uh, accept and enhance your spidiness? They, they embraced it, man. They embraced it. My, my son's six foot four. He's a high school pitcher. And his high school colors happen to be red and blue. And they, they, he's known as Spidey because of me. And so when he's playing his rival team and they're trying to uh, interact with him and distract him as a pitcher, they call him Spidey, Spider-Man. He strikes out the first guy, he turns to their bench, and he shoots the whole the webs on the whole bench. And my daughter, has a, her first tattoo ever was a Spider-Man on her ribcage, so they couldn't help it. They were indoctrinated into the Spidey love. All right, so thank you for the interview. Thank you. And thank this you. is Richie Rollins signing off for Comics, Beer, and Sci-Fi.
Hey, you comic book geeks and you sci-fi freaks. Comic book Casey coming at you from Comics Beer and Sci-Fi. We are at the Fantasticon in Toledo, Ohio. About an hour's drive for me. Not really me. I'm not driving. But I am here with one of the legendary comic book artists that I've grown up admiring. One of my heroes. I'm, I'm almost at a loss for words, but this is Sam. Don't mess with Texas. De La Rosa. Man, going, it's going great, man. Yeah, thank you very much. Let's just substitute that that legendary for old, okay? <laughs> old. <laughs> Living legend, how about that? Uh, I appreciate that. Thank I, you so much. And I'm, I'm proud to say I have 85% of your books thank on you this so table much. on display. And as you know, I picked well, up two more today. I appreciate the royalties because Marvel will pay me royalties for that. <laughs> That's good to know. Very good to know. So, all right, let's, let's take us back now, okay? Yeah. When did you get started in this business? You know, uh, it's something I always wanted to do as a little kid, you know, um, back in grade school. I used to like to draw, as, as most kids like to draw. So uh, I just came across some comic books, and uh, that was really exciting to me. So that's all I ever wanted to do since I was in grade school. So once I got a little bit older, I thought I was uh, good enough to send in samples. I sent in samples to Marvel, but it took me 10 years. 10 years of sending in samples. Um, nobody told me that they weren't going to hire anybody from Texas unless you were right there nearby to turn in the work. So it didn't matter how good you were. I didn't know that, but I kept trying. What really helped is uh, in the early 80s, FedEx became a reliable company. It opened up the whole country to many other artists besides myself, and that's how I got in because of FedEx. Okay. Appreciate that. Shout out, to, shout out to FedEx for helping a living legend be here today. So what was your first assignment with Marvel? Well, I, I'm, I'm going to backtrack because my first assignment professionally was for DC. Oh, okay. So I worked for DC in 1982. Um, they were the first one to hire me. So right off the bat, they put me on a book. I think I have it somewhere around here. No, I, I don't, but it was Action Comics, number 534. That's the flagship title. That is their company book. So right away, I'm on there. So I got the character. Who's the lead character? The lead character was Airwave, but it's a Superman book. But Superman made a guest appearance. So did Green Lantern, Hawk Girl. So I got all those guys there under my belt as my first assignment. Now for Marvel, it was later that same year, and I got to work on Hercules. And then from Hercules, I went on to Spider Woman, and then I did some Spider Man, and then just about everything else. Okay, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask a daring question. Who did you like working for more, Marvel or DC? It's so easy. I mean, you know, both companies are great. They're professional, you know. Uh, but as a kid, I grew up on Marvel Comics. Marvel Comics, as a kid, to read them and to look at the pictures was more exciting. You know, uh, I like the writing of Stan Lee and his other writers. As opposed to DC, it was a, not as fun. So easy, Marvel. And you got to draw with Jack. Kirby. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I got a picture of me. We're going to show that picture. And, uh, Jack Kirby. So this is uh, over 40 years ago. So let's zoom in here. Look at that. That's me and Jack Kirby drawing side by side 40 years ago. Now, Jack Kirby didn't set up at shows and draw like the rest of us, but he did this one time because this uh, little kid asked him for a Captain America drawing, and that's what Jack's doing right there. I'm working on a storm. That's what I usually do. But Jack, this was special for Jack, so. If only I could time travel, <laughs> I would have been that kid. So I got a picture with Jack, and then the, 
my only picture was Stan Lee because I never thought to take a photo with Stan. Was this picture? We we were at a hotel together, and we were checking in at the at the desk and started talking. And then I just thought of, hey, how about a phone uh, uh, a picture stand? But I only had my phone camera, and this was like 2007. So it's a it's a lousy camera phone, but it's my only picture of me and Stan Lee. Sometimes one is enough. But later, you know, we, we got to sort of work together on this project called uh, Spider-Man Mutant Agenda. Uh, Marvel and I did uh, three issues for the comics. Stan and uh, his brother Larry Lieber worked on the same storyline for the newspaper strip. That's as close as I got to working with Stan Lee. Okay, now you also had the opportunity, obviously, because of Venom being a successful comic book, that everyone really attributes a lot of its success to you. Nice. Todd McFarlane, what's that like? Yeah, Todd, Todd is uh, amazing. You know, he is the co-creator of Venom. I didn't, I didn't create Venom. I just worked on the specific books that Sony chose to make, so far, two movies out of. But Todd McFarlane and David uh, Michelini co-created Venom, so I'm grateful to them. But... Venom's origin started before that. That was 1988. His origin started in 1984 with the black suit symbiote costume. So there's a couple of artists involved with that. But then later he became Venom, and then later I worked on the comics good enough to make movies out of. How does that make you feel when these iconic characters that you've drawn and helped mainstream become movie projects you know uh, I'm just fortunate you know uh, I did a lot of work for Marvel they like what I was doing they put me on high-profile projects so I'm just grateful to Marvel and the fans uh, and to Sony after all these years uh, you know to still be you know pop popular yeah I can only imagine you're at the red carpet premieres I'd imagine for each of the movies that are released right you know I, I wish that was so but I haven't gotten an invite yet <laughs> Well, I tell you what, man, these would not exist. These would not be big budget movie projects without you. Well, I appreciate that. You know, there's a whole lot of creators out there. They worked on a lot of comic books. Now their uh, uh, ideas and images are in movies. So, you know, uh, I hope the fans appreciate, you know, where the movie started. Is Venom your favorite to draw or do you have an, a, a different favorite character to draw? I, I have another favorite, Spider-Man. But... My next favorite would be Venom and Carnage, maybe followed by Aunt May. So. <laughs> oh, did not see that one coming, y'all. Did not see Aunt May coming. Yeah. Paul Rudd, if you watch this, this man just basically boosted your social media by at least 10,000 by him saying that. Yeah, you can't go wrong with any of the cast of characters in the you know, Spider-Man uh, you know, family group. Well, I appreciate you being here. I appreciate that you're still doing these events, man, whether they're big or small. Yeah. I mean, basically, uh, again, man, yeah, I can't you know, thank you I'm, enough. I'm a guest at shows every single weekend. You know, I'm fortunate enough to be across the country as a guest, uh, you know, Comic-Cons, big and small. Uh, also been fortunate to go overseas uh, as a guest, uh, Ireland, Dubai a couple of times, Mexico City, uh, Canada. So I I'm just grateful to be in this position. So... Uh, thanks to the fans, you know, they, they can connect with me if they want. My social media is artist Sam De La Rosa, both on Facebook and Instagram. The shows, the conventions, the fans, we're grateful to have this man still having the energy to do what he's doing. I've watched him. He's been interacting with everybody. No one ever feels left out when you come visit him. 
Thanks again, man. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. This is Comic Book Casey signing off. Comics Beer and Sci-Fi, y'all. It's Richie Rollins for Comics Beer and Sci-Fi here at the Fantastic Con, and I'm standing here with... Craig Reinbrecht. And, uh, Craig, this is the Robot Builders Club, correct? The, what's the, uh... The B9? B9 Robot Builders Club. The B9 Robot is the robot from the old classic sci-fi TV show Lost in Space from the 1960s. And I understand you made one of these robots. Yes, this is my robot here and we've got uh, three other robots that were made by other robot builders as we call ourselves. Um, all of us grew up around the time when the show was initially on in the 1960s and we just fell in love with the robot. It was the coolest thing ever, you know, and uh, as, a, as a little kid, this was like the, the coolest thing. And then, you know, and those, it, it's very strange as you become an adult, those feelings that you got deep down when, it, you know, when you were a kid um, come to the surface. And, you know, I discovered back, it's, we're going 20 plus years ago, that there was a club on the internet of guys building these robots and uh, it, as soon as I found out this is possible I'm like this I have to do this you know so I started on my journey to uh, build this guy and nice alright uh, how uh, what goes into this uh, building a robot like how long did it take and what did you have to do to make it well initially it took me about a year and a half to build. Um, I've been upgrading things ever since, but what, what really makes it possible for a you know, guy like me and any of us is, is having this club because we can pool our resources. And there's a lot of different facets to the robot. You know, the, the body shell's made out of fiberglass. So you've got, say, one guy that's really good, knows how to do fiberglass work, and he can build torsos and sell them to the rest of the club. And then you have somebody that is good at doing welding or something like that and they can make steel tread sections uh, we've got a, a club member that's a makeup effects artist in Hollywood and he's an expert at uh, molding and casting rubber and he's the one that made the uh, the rubber legs and uh, you know and I learned a lot of things as I built it and now I sell a lot of parts to the club are you, are you all engineers or uh, no, not all of them. I'm, I'm, was an engineer, uh, and uh, you know many of these other guys. A lot of them are much more sophisticated as me. Uh, everybody builds them differently. Uh, my, what I wanted to do in building mine. Mine's actually built as a costume, exactly like the original prop from the show, and that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to replicate the original prop. But a lot of guys build a lot of sophisticated animatronics into theirs. You know, there's a lot of things you can do with this. It's a, it's a pretty cool hobby. How much does something like this cost to put together? Well, it, a lot of it depends on your the level of uh, quality and the type of materials you use. And um, but you could you could spend somewhere between five and ten thousand dollars building one. Um, you could buy a, a fully licensed, uh, built 
B9 robot. Uh, there's a company called Gotham Cruisers that sell one, and they're about $18,500. You could buy a, a full-size one already built and put it in your living room. Um, so, so that's the... So would you say yours is to the specifications as the original TV show? I, Yeah, that was kind of my thing. I, I, I'm sort of a, a detail guy, and I studied the original robot very closely to get a lot of details right things like you know how the how the arms attach to the to the torso with these little hooks and you know I replicated those things as exactly as I could and we get kind of crazy with this stuff too you know even the the font on these buttons I recreated you know as exactly as I could to the original so it's it's it was it was it's a labor it was labor of love let's put it that way it's pretty cool i like the way it came out thank you for being on our show my pleasure this is richie rollins from comic experience sci-fi this is richie rollins from comic experience sci-fi here at the fantastic con in toledo ohio and i'm standing here with tom frogner and uh, Mr. Frodner, are you part of the B9 uh, Robot Builders Club? Part of the B9 Robot Builders Club, yes, definitely. But you got something else that's not like the robots here. You have something of genuine interest here. Well, that's right, because I have actual props from the series that we brought with us today. We actually have uh, the original helmet that was used by June Lockhart and Warren Oates in an episode. We also have a control box that was used by Jonathan Harris in several episodes. We also have a Roman helmet that was used in all kinds of movies, even Star Trek, that was worn by Jonathan Harris. And then what we don't even have today uh, with us, we actually have actual costumes from the series, and then we have a reproduction of the Jupiter II flight deck. Wow. How did you come to acquire these props? Well, it all started many years ago. I went to a chiller convention and saw the robots and asked about building a robot. I acquired my own. At the same time, I was finishing my basement, and we just decided to recreate the Jupiter II. And then we did that, and then we next, the next step was, I just started just thought, thinking it would be great to go to and share this with people at shows. So we built a, a traveling display of the Jupiter II flight deck, and we started adding props to it. And I started acquiring things, because I want everybody to be able to see the, the actual props used in the show. That's what I always wanted to see. You know, a lot of people have collections, and you never get to see them. And they're just put away, so we want to bring this to people. And then I was extremely lucky when MeTV uh, approached me about appearing on the show Collector's Call with Lisa Welchel. She was on The Facts of Life. So they came over to the house and filmed an episode last year of Collector's Call, and it's all lost in space. And we've been on uh, YouTube, and we've had over 80,000 views. Wow. Would you say Lost in Space is your favorite show? Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. Lost in Space is my favorite show. Definitely. What's your earliest memory of Lost in Space? Well, I can even tell you the first night. I was in third grade when it, it actually premiered on a Wednesday night back in 1965 at 7.30 p.m., and I, I remember seeing the promos for it, and I got to watch this as a kid. I can't even tell you what I was doing in school that day. And coming home in that evening, you know, sitting down and watching the opening of The Reluctant Stowaway, it was in black and white, and I was captivated. I mean, I just couldn't get enough of it. And then, I, I, never my wildest dreams that I think I would be doing shows in the future like this. And even being with cast members, because I have several of the cast members as my friends now, Marta Kristen and Mark Goddard, and we actually do shows with Marta Kristen. 
That's pretty cool. What did you think about the uh, movies that came out later, the, the, the remakes? Well, the remake Lost in Space movie, it was okay until Dr. Smith turned into a spider. And the Jupiter 2 was different, and most people now even forget about the movie. And then, we, of course, we have the new uh, Netflix series that came out several years ago, and I watched it, it and it was a great series, but it, I didn't really feel it, it really captured the original concept of Lost in Space. But it was, a, it was really good. It had good production values, and I actually do own several props from, the, from that television series that we bring, because people want to see it. So we have I, have, a, I have a control deck from the Jupiter 2, and some patches and things like that that they use for the series. Is there a prop out there you don't have that's like the holy grail for you that you want to have, that you must have? You know, there, uh, any of the spacesuits and costumes, I'm into things like that. You know, even the helmets. There was only three helmets for this series. I know where all three is. You know, I have one of them. Um, there's been recent auctions when a lot of the costumes have been auctioned off, and they've been ex astronomical prices. They really have been. And I'm, unfortunately, I'm not a multi-millionaire, so that's not going to happen. We'd love to see the original robot someday, which was sold off and is in a private collection. I've even advertised on Facebook saying, if you have it, please come forward. We'd like to see our mechanical friend again, one at least one last time. So. It would be nice to compare your work to the actual that's work. That's right. That's correct. All righty. Well, thank you, Tom. Hey, my Thanks pleasure. for being on the show. This Thanks is Rich. Coming today. Thank you. This is Richie Rollins from Comic Experience Sci-Fi. Keep watching. That's it for this episode of the Comic Experience Sci-Fi Podcast. Thank you for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time. <laughs>